Hello friends, I am your host Melissa and this is Corality. The episode I have for you today is actually a special one for me and one that you may or may not have heard of. For those of you who don't know, my husband's family consists of a lot of law enforcement, one of them being his grandpa who is a detective in Sacramento, California. And I'm telling you guys this because the case I have for you today is about the vampire killer of Sacramento and my husband's grandpa was the one who caught him. Welcome to our cruel reality, everyone. Richard Trenton Chase was born May 23, 1950, in Santa Clara County, California, to Richard Chase Sr. and Beatrice. He appeared to have a normal childhood and seemed to be just an average boy. And when he was three years old, his family had moved to Sacramento, and the following year, his sister Pamela was born. He had played Little League Baseball for four years and was well-liked by his teachers, who all thought he was sweet and popular with his peers. On the surface, the Chase family seemed quite normal, but Richard's parents were strict disciplinarians who doled out punishment on a regular basis. When he was only two years old, he was force-fed by his father until he vomited. His sister Pamela had recalled confrontations between her brother and father that ended with Richard Sr. shaking him or throwing him against the wall. Their father was allegedly emotionally abusive and would yell at Richard whenever he messed something up. His father also had difficulty managing money and alcoholism, which caused some marital issues and would lead to fights that would often be loud and in front of the children. Beatrice even had a tendency to accuse him of using dope and tried to poison her, and as the years went on, she started accusing him of infidelity with their neighbors and once claimed that he was cheating while the family was on a camping trip in Oregon. When Richard was 10 years old, he developed an interest in dead animals. He liked to kill and torture the neighborhood cats because he was fascinated by their blood and insides. He later began killing birds, rabbits, and dogs, and at one point he had even killed so many of the stray cats in the neighborhood that the neighbors started to take notice of them suddenly disappearing, and Beatrice had even found one buried in the soil among her flowers. When Richard was 12 years old, his parents' fighting had reached a boiling point, and his mother had saw two different psychiatrists for emotional issues, and a year later his parents had went through an economic hardship and lost their house. When Richard was 13, he had also been convinced that he was a member of the James Younger Gang, which was a group of outlaws from the 19th century that included the infamous Jesse James. He had even got a poster made of the gang and had edited his picture onto it and asked his mother repeatedly for a cowboy hat. He had also developed a weird habit of burning pans when he cooked for himself late at night and made messes with no effort to clean it up. At times, he would turn the heat up in the house to 90 degrees when he was home alone, take his clothes off, and spend the night on the couch in the living room. He also liked to play with matches and would often set small fires and was still wetting the bed. There's something called the McDonald trial, and it was a supposedly like a set of behaviors that were thought to be predictive of violent behavior when observed in childhood. The three behaviors are animal cruelty, frequent bedwetting past the age of five, and arson. And Richard had exhibited all three of them. 
When Richard was a freshman in high school, his parents had separated and his mom took both him and his sister to Los Angeles to live with relatives. About a week later, Richard Sr. followed with the intent of bringing his son back to Sacramento, and four months later, Beatrice and Pamela had followed and went back home. At school, Richard, who was known to Rick to his classmates, seemed to have no trouble fitting in. He kept to himself, was well-groomed, and was just decently popular and had even gone on a few dates with girls. He had two serious girlfriends, to which both of these relationships had unfortunately come to an end for the same reason, being erectile dysfunction. He had become humiliated by this, and in, the, in his mind, he actually thought that it was because of the lack of blood, and in order to fix it, he needed to consume the blood of animals. Richard had started taking up drinking and had begun to experiment with marijuana and also took in large amounts of LSD and other drugs. And in 1965, he had his first run-in with the law when he was only 15 for possession of marijuana. He had denied taking drugs, but the juvenile court had ordered him to do community cleanup work on the weekends, which his father did not protest to. And his father also did not hire him a lawyer to defend him, which made Richard upset and added to his growing resentment towards his family. Richard had graduated from Miraloma High School in June of 1968, to which his parents had bought him a Volkswagen as a present. In 1969, Richard started seeing a psychiatrist for his erectile dysfunction, as well as his emotional instability, to which his parents' constant fighting and financial troubles had added to. He was told that his erectile dysfunction was caused by an emotional issue, likely anxiety or repressed rage towards women, and his psychiatrist had actually suspected that he was mentally ill, but it was not enough that he needed it to be intervened. As he got older, he grew his hair long and had begun to neglect his personal hygiene, giving him a constantly disheveled look. He began to withdraw more and more from other people, and his friends had stopped coming by the house. Even though his father was worried about his looks, his mother thought nothing of their son's look because it was the 60s and it was the age of hippies. Therefore, the grimy, unkept look was in and popular and Richard just looked like any other teenager at the time. So she had refused to consider that her son's appearance was the result of any real problem. In late 1968, he finally got a job as a typist with the Retailers Credit Association and he had also begun to think about going to college, which was obviously a decision his parents encouraged, and eventually enrolled at the American River College. Unfortunately, it did not last long, and Richard was expelled for not going to classes. With Richard not having anywhere to go and being expelled, he was sitting on a stoop of a house of two young women, and they had walked by and saw him, and they had struck up a conversation with him when one of them had recognized them from going to high school together. The woman had still thought of Richard as the well-mannered, handsome boy and had offered him a room when Richard had opened up about his situation. Richard was very ecstatic about this and accepted the invite, and best of all, his parents who provided him with rent money did not have to know about his latest failure. Eventually, he had started to overwhelm his new roommates because his drug habit had not gotten any better. While marijuana was still his drug of choice, he was also still using LSD, and he was constantly high, making it difficult for his roommates to reason with him when his behavior became particularly difficult. 
He became paranoid thinking that someone was after him and he needed to get away, so he ended up boarding his bedroom door closed and knocked a hole in the closet wall and then nailed shut the closet door from the inside. He also could never hold down a steady job, so he was up at all hours making noises and keeping his roommates up. He rarely bathed and never did his own laundry, which obviously gave him a very noticeable, gross, foul smell that the roommates found repulsive. When the girls had approached him about leaving, Richard had refused, and in his state, the girls had feared that if they kept pushing it they and upset him, that, they would attack, that he would attack them, so they ended up just packing their things and moving out. Richard was actually happy about this because he was able to be alone, but when the time came for rent to be paid, Richard had found himself in trouble because the money that he had received from his father and what he made from his occasional odd jobs was not enough to cover both the rent and bills, so when the brother of one of the former roommates moved in, he knew he had to be less hostile. Unfortunately, Richard's idea of being less hostile was not exactly pleasant either, and upon finding out that his new roommate and his friends had a rock band, Richard insisted on joining them, and when the men came over to practice their instruments, he often showed up with bongo drums. While they tried to make music, Richard banged on them without rhythm and sang loudly and off-key. This new roommate had not as much patience as his sister and had managed to kick him out. Richard had returned to his parents, who had believed that their son had been attending classes, but that he ended up getting expelled, so obviously they were disappointed, but he was their son and he needed help so they let him move back in with them richard had become more resentful every day towards his parents and had even believed that his mom was trying to poison him and control his mind which gave him disturbing and delusional thoughts he had decorated his room with the pictures of human hearts cut out from anatomy books and felt like his desire for blood could never be satisfied and eventually he felt like he could no longer think of anything else In late 1971, Richard found himself having to move back in with his parents after his failed attempt to live an independent life. Unfortunately, while he was away, his parents' marriage had reached its breaking point and the two ended up separating. With his parents providing for him, he didn't see the need to get a job and would work odd jobs here and there, but his eccentric behavior and his drug addiction made it impossible for him to keep one for more than a few days. When he ended up with over $500 worth of parking tickets, he continued to drive around unconcerned with the legal consequences, and even though his mother ended up paying all of his fines, Richard lost his license and sold his Volkswagen for a motorcycle. In 1972, Richard had went on a two-week trip to Utah with his two dogs, Sabbath and Heavy. It is unclear what the purpose of this trip was or what he did, but at some point he did get arrested for more traffic violations. His car was impounded and his dogs were taken to a shelter temporarily. Beatrice had bailed him out and brought him home, but as soon realized that something had changed about her son while he was away. He was just as paranoid and antsy as before, but now he had these constantly bizarre beliefs that the police had poisoned him or asphyxiated him in some way while he was in his cell that made him severely physically sick. Richard had believed that his body was rapidly deteriorating and that his stomach was on backwards and that his heart would occasionally stop beating. After this, Richard started having these fits of just being constantly agitated and had gotten so bad that his speech was deteriorated and the few times that he could talk, he would argue with his mother and sometimes their fights would turn physical, so she sent him to live with his father. 
Richard Sr. was doing home renovations at the time, and his son had even helped him, and when working alone, he would prove to be a competent handyman. Richard still felt like he didn't need to get a job or wouldn't get a job because he said that he was too weak from an illness that caused his body to go numb, which in turn caused both him and his father to argue, and eventually he was sent back to live with his mother and sister. Richard had gotten to the point that he had a short temper and had frequent violent tantrums. On one occasion, he had gotten into an argument with his mom, and when she had called the police, he had hit her over the head with the phone, and when he realized that the police were coming, he jumped over the fence and ran away. He was quickly caught and brought back, but his mom did not press charges against him. Eventually, Beatrice had reached her limit of stress from dealing with her son, as well as the aftermath from her divorce, and she had reached out to her mom, Holly, for help. Richard was sent down to Los Angeles to live with his grandmother and even got a job as a school bus driver for developmentally disabled children under his uncle. Of course, he performed poorly and never cleaned his bus or did any maintenance on it, so it was constantly low in oil and he never washed his clothes, or himself for that matter, and was fired after a year, which would be the longest that he would ever hold a job. Unemployed again, he had spent days sleeping and was only active at night, making all kinds of strange noises. Fed up with this, Holly sent her grandson back to Sacramento around Christmas time, and after going back to live with his mother, he seemed to be getting better and became more social and had expressed interest in getting a job and started going out with friends again. But like always, this didn't last long. In early 1973, he had gotten a job at a local paint store, but quit a little over a week later because he had made enough money to buy something that he had his eye on for a while, which would be a 22 caliber pistol. On March, on April 22nd, sorry, um, he had gotten into a fight at a party, and he the cops had ended up coming, and he was arrested and charged with a misdemeanor and fined fifty dollars. The next day, his father picked him up, and as he always did whenever he got in trouble, Richard had denied that he'd done anything wrong and also claimed that the police had been violent and seriously injured him. He wanted to sue, but his father had managed to talk him out of it, and after this incident, his parents had sent him back to live with his grandma Holly in Los Angeles. Richard had repeatedly told his grandma that he was sick, but he could never quite specify with what. He was plagued by constant headaches as well as a mysterious new pain in his leg. Believing that his illness was caused by a vitamin deficiency, he took to wrapping his head with a towel filled with orange slices. He explained that the nutrients from the fruit could seep into his head, and when that obviously did not work, he would stand on his head in the corner of his room to try and get the blood flowing back to his brain. During this time, a disturbing new symptom of Richard's untreated mental illness began to show, and on one night, Holly had overheard Richard having a conversation with someone, but nobody had come over. She had heard Richard asking himself if he was a good boy and answering himself, saying that he was, in fact, a good boy. Holly reached her limit when she had found out that her mentally ill grandson had purchased that 22 caliber handgun and sent him back to Sacramento in July, just two months after he arrived, and he was again living with his father. The two men constantly bickered, sometimes even coming to blows, which resulted in tension that, was caused, that caused Richard to move back in with his mother, though according to neighbors, it was not uncommon to see Richard standing in the middle of the driveway, staring blankly at his father's house. Richard was still convinced that he was very sick and had begged his mother to take him to the doctor. 
Beatrice resisted, and on one occasion, he had called the fire department, telling the operator that he was suffering from cardiac arrest. When the fire trucks and ambulance arrived, they realized that Richard was perfectly fine and refused to treat him. However, one of the paramedics had sensed that there was more going on than a simple lie, and before they left, he suggested that Beatrice take him into the hospital anyways. On December 1st, 1973, Richard was admitted to the American River Hospital. He had claimed that his heart had stopped beating and his blood stopped flowing, his kidneys stopped working, and he had a persistent stomachache and hernia, and somebody had stolen his pulmonary artery. Tests revealed that there was nothing medically wrong with him, but this did not satisfy Richard. Dr. Lyons, a specialist who saw Richard, on the other hand, began to suspect that this filthy, wild-eyed, and delusional young man was indeed unwell, but with an illness of the mind. When Richard was asked if he heard voices or had experienced hallucinations, he claimed that he hadn't. Richard then claimed that he was suffering from a brain aneurysm and he had to be placed in the intensive care unit. He did not want to answer any more questions about his sanity and he understood that the human body just as much as any doctor because he often read articles in Grey's Anatomy about the heart, lungs, and stomach. Richard's wild claims only further convinced the physician that he was mentally ill and had thought that he was likely suffering from chronic acute paranoid schizophrenia at 23 years old. However, given Richard, sorry, Richard's chronic drug use, Dr. Lyons also had to consider if these symptoms were instead the result of toxic psychosis. It was the better of two possible diagnoses since it was temporary, but it still required that Richard be held for at least 72 hours for observation in the psychiatric ward. Unaware of Richard's violent behavior, the medical staff did not place him under careful confinement, and he soon left the hospital without permission. Beatrice had brought him back, but did not let him stay, claiming that somebody had been bothering Richard and she would deal with his problems at home. When the staff had tried to argue, she became hostile and provocative and was referred to as the quote-unquote so-called schizophrenic mother. Throughout the next few years, Beatrice took him to a number of different doctors, one of which took a brain scan and an electrocardiogram, to which one, once again, nothing came back for anything being physically wrong with him, even though Richard had continued to say that his heart had stopped. In 1976, the same doctor, doctor recommended Richard for welfare because his neurosis made it impossible for him to hold a job and was also given an oxygen tank, likely as a treatment for his anxiety. After this, Richard went through another phase where he seemed to improve. He started taking better care of himself by exercising and eating better, which resulted in him putting on about 20 pounds. This hopeful period only lasted a few months because Richard once again began to abuse illegal drugs, triggering his psychotic symptoms, but this time he would reach a whole new low and was more violent than ever. He terrorized his mother and sister on one occasion. His sister fled from the house during his outburst, and Beatrice had also run away in fear as he destroyed everything in the home. He had slapped his mother so hard that he knocked her to the ground, and he kicked holes in the walls, broke windows, and knocked doors off their hinges. When Beatrice tried to call Richard Sr. for help, he arrived to find Richard pulling the phone and all of its wires out from the wall. The stress of the situation made Beatrice's own mental disturbances rise to the surface. Upon noticing that her son tended to have his most violent episodes after speaking with Richard Sr. on the phone, she became convinced that her ex-husband was ordering Richard to break things and attack her. One of Richard's most disturbing behaviors reappeared when he started torturing animals again. 
Using a pocket knife, he would poke and cut the paws of the family dog, later grabbing the dog and holding it by the snout, squeezing so hard that the dog could not escape from his painful grip, and Richard held on until that part of the dog's skull almost cracked. For some time after this, the dog had struggled to eat solid food. Beatrice once again had had enough, and after another incident where she and Pamela had to flee their home, she knew she could not keep living with her son like this. Despite her own delusions, she had called her ex-husband, and the elder Richard came down to try and stop the younger man. Paranoid and enraged, Richard got into a fistfight with his father outside his mother's home, and both parents were at a loss of how to handle him. So, desperate and exhausted, they searched for an apartment for Richard to live in on his own. Being that Richard had all this freedom, he started going to a local rabbit farm in Rio Linda and hoarding them. He had a cage on his bike and would frequently go there to get more once he would get low, and what he was doing to these poor animals was absolutely disgusting. I'm not going to go into detail about it, but he would just cut them up in multiple different ways and he would drink their blood. Once a week, his father would come visit to bring him groceries and they would either play cards or chess. His father did see all these cages and asked what he was doing with all the rabbits, and Richard did say he was eating them, just not how he was eating them. When his father had went by the apartment the following day, he was surprised to see the door wide open, and when he approached, he was hit by a foul smell, which, being around his son, he had gotten used to, but this was completely different, and it was the overwhelming smell of vomit and blood. He had went inside to find his son stripped down to his underwear, sitting on the couch, the color drained from his face, and all around him, the place was covered in vomit. When his father had asked what happened, Richard had responded that he bought a bad rabbit and had got food poisoning. His father had taken him to the emergency room at the Sacramento Community Clinic, where it was thought that Richard had blood poisoning and that he could possibly be going into septic shock. The doctor had thought that he had gotten sick from dirty needles but didn't see any marks on his arm and Richard had told the doctor that it was the rabbit and that the rabbit he ate had eaten battery acid and when he ate it, the acid had corroded with the walls of his stomach and seeped into his flesh. It was soon revealed that Richard wasn't just drinking the blood but he was injecting himself with it because he had believed that his own blood was so critically low that he had to replenish it with animal blood. After running a few tests, it was confirmed and Richard was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenic and was also suffering from somatic delusions. After recovering from the blood poisoning, he was transferred to the psychiatric ward at the American River Hospital and was held for 14 days. He was admitted on April 28, 1976, and two days later he had tried to run out, but the hospital staff had chased after him and managed to catch him. But Richard had struggled until he broke free, and the next day his father brought him back. It was clear that Richard needed more intensive care than the American River Hospital could provide, so he was transferred on May 19th to Beverly Manor, which is a facility that specializes in mental health, where his weird actions would get him the nickname of Dracula. Michael Buckley, another doctor, wrote in his report that Richard had been entirely uncooperative with the treatment and was again diagnosed with being a paranoid schizophrenic. Doctors realized that the antipsychotic medication that they had put him on was proving to be ineffective. The very worst of his symptoms had not improved at all, and everyone was afraid of him. It was getting so bad that two nurses quit having, after having to work with him. 
Richard Narver of the Sacramento Public Guardian's Office decided that the best course of action would be for Richard's parents to be appointed as his conservators, which is like a guardianship for disabled people, and by September of 1976, it was decided that he was at last well enough to be discharged. His doctor had believed that Richard had developed good socialization skills, was thinking clearer, and gained a more realistic view of his health issues during his stay at Beverly Manor. But the staff had a much different view and raised hell about him being released and believed that he was not better as they are the ones who had to deal with him on a daily basis and believed that he was only being released because the facility became overcrowded. On September 29, 1976, against the pleas of the hospital staff, Richard Chase was set free into the world again. By 1977, when it came time to decide if Richard's parents wanted to renew their conservatorship over him, they decided that it was no longer necessary due to him seeming to get better, and since he didn't complain about any illnesses, he was more easier to manage. 27-year-old Richard moved out of his apartment and decided to travel across the country. He only had about $1,000 saved up from his welfare payments, so he headed to Washington, D.C., and 18 days later, he came back with a new car, which was a Ford Ranchero that he bought in the Steamboat Springs, Colorado. After staying with his mom and sister for a brief time, he moved back into the apartment complex he was in before. Beatrice had believed that her son was doing well on his own, but when she went to visit again, she had noticed that the adverse of effects of the medication that he had been on prescribed for his schizophrenia was causing him to be a completely different person. Schizophrenia was not as well understood back in the 70s as it is today and it was a lot more difficult to treat. Richard's medication had eased his aggression and somatic delusions but it also diminished his energy and vitality. He had become constantly sluggish and was described as almost zombie-like by his mother. This distressed Beatrice, and she figured she had to help her son and decided that Richard would be fine without his medication and slowly weaned him off of it. For a while, he was fine and continued to go to his appointments with his new physician until he abruptly stopped going after the second visit. He appeared to be in good health until he was convinced that he was suffering from a blood clot in his brain that caused headaches. Once again, he had been gun taking illicit drugs, and some days he appeared more well-adjusted, spending time with his father without making any odd claims about his health, and at other times he would do seemingly nonsensical things such as subletting his apartment to strangers only to call Richard Sr. to chase away the unwanted guests later. He once again began torturing the family's same German Shepherd Heavy, whose snout he nearly broke before. According to Beatrice, Richard clearly gained some sort of sick pleasure from inflicting pain on the poor animal, and in the summer of 1977, he killed both Heavy and Sabbath, which was the other family dog. When he was confronted about this, he had told his parents that he had the right to do what he wanted to do, as the dogs belonged to him. One evening, Beatrice heard a loud bang right outside her door and tried to ignore it because she had figured it was Richard, but the knock persisted, and shortly after that, she had heard a gunshot. Frightened that she went, she went to the check her front door, and at her doorway, she had saw her son covered in blood. In one hand, he held a rifle, and in another hand, he held her cat by its tail. It was dead and had been shot once to the head, with its brains splattered all over her front porch. Beatrice had watched as he threw the cat's corpse to the ground, and he got down on his knees and flipped the animal on its back. 
He tore the skin off his stomach open as easily as it were made out of wet paper and reached inside the hole he made and smeared the blood all over his face. Speechless and afraid, all his mother did was shut the door. In August 1977, in Pyramid Lake, on an Indian reservation in Nevada, 200 miles from Sacramento, on a routine patrol, officers from Indian Bureau of Affairs noticed a pickup truck that was stuck in the sand. When they looked into the vehicle, they had found lots of bloodstains, a rifle, and a white bucket on the floor of the cab, and in that bucket was an entire liver sitting in a pool of blood. Officers had scanned the area with binoculars until at last they had found something. Perched on a rock about a mile south, a man sat on a small rocky cliff over the desert shrub land. He was completely naked and he was covered in blood, and when he saw the officers, he had run off in the opposite direction. The officers had caught him and arrested him, and the man had identified himself as Richard Trenton Chase, who had come all the way from Sacramento, and when he was asked where the blood was from, Richard had replied that the blood was his and it had seeped out of his skin and would not stop. They had to take a man in for questioning, and while he was in custody, they had the blood tested, which came back to have been from a cow. Richard was released without charges, and a few days later, Richard Sr. drove to Sparks, Nevada to take Richard back home to Sacramento. Once he was back in his apartment, his need for blood only intensified as the year went on. Around December 1977, he had went and bought a gun for his own Christmas present, and he had been in one of his good phases when he was where he was acting normal and showing interest in getting a job. So his parents had got him a Christmas present, which was a bright orange parka, which I will have you store in the back of your head for now because that will come up later. And even though they had bought him presents, what he really wanted was to be with his family, but they still didn't want him around for the holiday, and that would be the final stop for Richard. And the day after Christmas, he had went and bought a box of ammunition, and three days later, he went from going from killing animals to killing people. His first victim was 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin, who had been shot while he was in his driveway unloading groceries. Richard Chase had watched as him and his wife unloaded groceries, and when he was alone grabbing the last of them, Richard had shot him and drove off. Ambrose's wife had run back outside when she had heard the, like, the pops, and she had heard her husband yell in pain. She did not register what those sounds were and thought that he was having, that he had a heart attack, but when the paramedics arrived, she had learned what had happened and that her husband had died. Lieutenant Ray Biondi was the chief of homicide at a sheriff's department and in charge of the case. Unfortunately, there were no obvious suspects, and when they ran a background on Griffin, they did not find any obvious reason why he would be a target of such a crime. Frank Davidson was the CSI officer that was called to the scene, and there wasn't much evidence to be found, but within the next couple days, um, a shell casings were found down the street. Police had assumed that it was just a throw killing and someone had wanted to just shoot someone, but more shots from the murder weapon had been fired discreetly into other homes in the neighborhood. Tips that came in weren't very helpful until a 12-year-old boy had come forward and had said that he was riding his bike on the day that Ambrose Griffin was killed, and he'd went by a store a few blocks from the shooting and had seen a brown Pontiac Trans Am drive by, which was his favorite type of car. So the boy had stopped and watched the vehicle go by and almost didn't notice when the driver took his hands away from the steering wheel, pulled out a gun, and shot at him. Luckily, the shot had missed and hit the window of the store instead, and the boy had fallen off his bike and hit the ground, but was unharmed. 
He did not see much of the driver, just that he was a male in his early 20s with brown hair who used some sort of snub-nosed handgun. It was a vague description, but that was the best lead the police had. In the 1970s, law enforcement began using hypnosis as a method of getting forgotten information out of subconscious minds of their witnesses. So, two days later, the boy had met with Leroy Walter, a PhD in hypnosis, in the sheriff's department. The boy had responded well to the session and recalled a few more important details about the car and its driver, and among the most important was the license plate number, and police had searched it up, but there was no registered Trans Am owners within the Sacramento area. Two Pontiacs with vaguely similar numbers were not brown or tan, nor were they Trans Ams. After that, there was no more helpful information, and the case went cold for several days. On January 9th, 1978, a more promising lead had surfaced, and after a few fruitless days searching the area for clues, detectives came across a routine police report that had been filed on December 27th, 1977, two days before Ambrose Griffin was murdered. Dorothy Polinski, who lived on Lynn Avenue, a few blocks away from the Griffin house, reported a shot that had been fired into her home. It had happened around 6.30 in the evening, and she had just finished having dinner and was doing the dishes when she had suddenly heard a sharp noise. The kitchen window broke, sending shards of sharp glass everywhere, and it was something fast and hot passed right above her head, piercing her thick hair bun. Cautiously, she touched her hair, but didn't find anything. Police had gone into her house to search the kitchen and found a bullet in the wood of one of her cupboards, which turned out to be a match to the gun that was used to kill Ambrose Griffin. On January 23, 1978, Richard Chase had struck a few times, one being before 10 a.m. He had tried to break into a woman's house while she was home, and she had watched him try to open the door, but it was locked, luckily, and he had then tried to go to the kitchen window to which the woman had followed him, but all of her windows were locked tight. He had headed back to the patio, and the woman had thought that he left, and while she was doing things around the kitchen to busy herself, she had looked up to see Richard standing in front of the window, staring at her with wide animal-like eyes. He had faintly muttered something, turned and lit a cigarette, and left the yard. About 30 minutes after this incident, Robert Edwards and his wife had returned home from a shopping trip. When they had gotten to their front door, they had heard someone walking around inside and then heard them running to the back of the house, a window open, and slammed shut. Robert had spotted the intruder and told him to stop and chased after him. After a while, he had lost him and went back to the house where law enforcement had already shown up. The intruder had left their house in absolute mess. With closets and drawers were open, piles of clothes were thrown across the floor, and when they went to the child's bedroom, they had seen that the intruder urinated inside the dresser drawers over the child's clothes and defecated on the bed. Before noon on the same day at the pantry market, a woman named Nancy Holden had been going through aisles shopping, not noticing that there was a guy following her. She only noticed him when he started walking directly towards her, and the man had looked oddly familiar, but she turned away from him, not wanting to take any chances. The man had suddenly asked if she was on the motorcycle when Kurt was killed, which was a strange um, question that confused Nancy because she she didn't know how this guy would know the name of someone she dated 10 years ago and that they weren't even in a relationship anymore by the time Kurt had gotten into a motorcycle accident that ended his life. 
Um, the man had come closer and repeated this question, and Nancy had backed away asking who he was, and he had responded with Rick. And she asked, you're Rick Chase? Nancy took another look at him, and yes, that name sounded familiar, and it took her a moment, but at last she realized who it was standing before her. It was Richard Trenton Chase. They had gone to high school together, but he had been a few grades ahead of her, and the only reason she really knew him was that her older was because her older sister dated him for a short period. He had continued to act weird and asking her for a ride, and she had been freaked out and gave up on shopping and hurried to check out with the items that she did have, where he followed behind her. She had rushed out of the store and threw her groceries in the car when she had heard him yelling after her, and luckily by the time he got to her car, she had all the doors locked and was able to drive off. After scaring Nancy Holden off, Richard had walked out of the shopping center parking lot and headed down the road. Eventually, he made it to a neighborhood that was not too far from the Watt Avenue apartment complex where he lived. He had seen the house in the distance at 2360 Tiogo Way, and as he got closer to the house, he had saw a woman that was alone, and it was believed that he actually saw her first at the pantry market, cashing a check over an hour previously. Richard pulled out his gun, which was the twenty-two caliber semi-automatic handgun that had been perfectly concealed in a shoulder holster under his orange parka. He cocked the weapon and unloaded a single bullet and left it in the mailbox. He had went and opened the door and found that it was unlocked, so in his deranged mind, he had meant that it was that he was welcome. He had swung the door open and came face to face with twenty-two-year-old Teresa Wallen. She had spent the day cleaning and running errands and had been right in the middle of taking the trash out. She was headed to the front door when it suddenly swung open. It was a man and he was armed. Richard had closed the door behind him and aimed his gun at her. The victim had dropped her bag and lifted her hands in obvious shock, to which Richard had shot her twice. The first bullet shot through the palm of her right hand and tore through her forearm and exploded out of her elbow, hitting her under the head. The other tore through her cheek and broke her jawbone. Teresa had fallen to the floor, and Richard approached her and got down on his knees and fired a third time, this time at close range into her brain, finally ending her life. Once he was certain that she was dead, Richard grabbed her by the shoulders and dragged her corpse to the master bedroom in the back. Teresa did have a husband named David Wallen who was a delivery driver for a linen company and he tended to work long hours and he usually started early in the morning and that day especially he would be busy even longer because he was assigned to train a new driver and there was a problem out on the road to Lake Tahoe. Um, the truck that they were driving that day kept breaking down and they didn't get very far in between Sacramento and California so they ended up just going back. Um, they shared a beer together and then David went home. When he had gotten home his house was dark with all the lights off and the stereo on. Their dog Brutus sat waiting but seemed restless and nervous. When David had turned the lights on there was garbage all over the living room floor. He had called out for Teresa but had gotten no response so he headed to the master bedroom where he found his wife. She had been almost completely naked with her legs balled apart and the thick blood cord of her internal organs were exposed as her abdomen had been cut open. His wife had suffered a terrible death, and he could see it on her face because her eyes that were once so warm and lovely were wide open with fear. 
David had let out a wail so loud that the entire neighborhood heard it, and he had collected himself enough to call his father and brother and then run out of the house yelling that his wife was dead, to which the neighbors had tried to console him and while calling the police. All the information that I have from here on out is actually going to be from a documentary about this um, that has, like, the detective and the chief and, like, the pro- the prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney, some, like, psychologist people, all that, um, and then the CSI. And one of them is going to be my um, husband's grandfather. And so when I refer to Wayne Irie, that is my husband's grandfather. And he had only been a detective for four or five months before he was called on to this case. So he was a fairly new detective when all of this started, and it was very overwhelming, but he did a very good job, obviously, as he caught the guy. So, I mean, he was a wonderful detective, and unfortunately, he did pass away a few years ago, so I was not able to, I'm not able to actually, like, interview him or talk to him about any of this. So the closest thing that I got was this documentary, which I will put a link to in the in the show notes for this episode. I will also put in the title of a book that I read for this case as well that goes into more graphic details um, if anyone is interested in reading that. Rookie detective Wayne Irie had only recently been promoted, like I said, four or five months ago um, and was mostly um, doing like misdemeanor crimes. So when he was called to this, um, it was very like new to him. Um, homicide Chief Ray Bionde was one of the first on the scene, and straight away he had spotted a sinister calling card, and the first thing he noticed was the bullet in the mailbox that Richard had left and quickly realized that it was the same kind of bullet that killed Ambrose Griffin. Bionde had went inside and seen the garbage scattered all over the floor in an obvious drag mark from the front room to the bedroom where Teresa Wallen had laid stuff on the floor. Her sweater had been pulled up to expose her breasts, and her pants and underwear were around her ankles. The look on her face was, like I said, very just sad, and her eyes had been wide open with her tongue pulled out of her mouth. Briefly, the detectives had wondered if she had been raped or if this undressing was a way to further humiliate the victim. Her abdominal cavity was nearly empty. Her organs were pulled out. Some were sitting on top of her, while some were falling to her side. A closer look revealed that one of her nipples had been sliced off, and the killer had cut her from her sternum down to her hip, and had done so much force that both of her sternum and her breastplate were hacked wide open. Teresa's autopsy found a number of even more disturbing details, and though criminalist Alan Gilmore had tested the body for signs that she had been raped, there was found to be no evidence that that happened and the position of her organs suggested that the killer had actually quote-unquote explored or played with her insides. The knife had been thrust so deeply into her abdomen that it hit the base of the spinal column and the intestines had not been damaged but the membranes and the tissue connecting them had been severed likely to get the organs out. The spleen had been completely cut out of her body and was lying on her and her stomach and liver had been cut with the knife. Hacking at the membrane connecting the intestines gave the killer access to Teresa's kidneys, which one of them was nearly cut in two, while the other had been torn out and placed inside of her chest. 
Her heart and diaphragm were punctured and the lower portion of one of her lungs had been sawed off. Detective Irie had said that it was a horrific homicide because not only did Richard kill her in such like a brutal way, but she was also three months pregnant at the time, so he killed an unborn child. Frank Davidson with CSI had found a used paper yogurt cup that had been later found out to be used to drink her blood. At the time, they thought they were dealing with someone who was a psychopath because of the way that he mutilated the body, and the crime scene had actually shown signs of what the FBI had classified as a disorganized killer. Robert Ressler was a former FBI profiler and said that it was a disorganized type of individual who committed disorganized type crimes, and crimes that would not be logical and reflect poor planning and rage. With a psychotic killer on the loose, the detectives felt like they needed to act fast, and Detective Irie had said that it was always a race against time, and the first 24 hours after a homicide are the most critical, and then the next 72 hours and anything after that, it starts to go cold, and you have a problem developing leads, as all of your leads and witnesses are going to come forward if you can find them within the first 72 hours. He had also went door to door asking the neighbors if they had seen anything and one of the neighbors that he talked to had seen Richard Chase and no, they did not know who it was, um, but it was, but they described him as being a dirty, skinny, weird white man in a bright orange parka and he had walked across this guy's front porch towards Teresa Wallen's house. News about the murder had hit the papers the next day and everyone was getting upset and talking about buying guns. Detective Irie had thought that everyone was more terrified because of the horrible nature of this murder because she was just taking out the garbage. She was pregnant and she was shot and gutted. He had also said that he saw a photograph of her and the fear of her face as something that he still saw on a regular basis. On Friday, January 27th, Richard had striked again, killing 36-year-old Evelyn Miroth, who was a recently divorced mother to her 13- and 6-year-old boy, and 50-year-old Danny Meredith, who was an old friend of Evelyn. Her best friend, Neon, who lived across the street, had asked her if her and the kids wanted to go to the Sierra Nevada mountains to play in the snow, but Evelyn had said that she was babysitting her 2-year-old nephew, so the neighbor had asked Jason, the six-year-old, if she if she could take him instead. Um, after a while of not hearing from Evelyn, the neighbor sent her daughter over, and the daughter had like knocked on the door, had gotten no response. And so when the daughter had gone back over to tell her that, tell her mom that, then like her mom started to get a little bit more worried. Um, so when another like neighbor and mutual friend had come she had told her about it and they went and she went to go check on Evelyn and had found the body of Danny and in disbelief and terror she had run out to the house like run out of the house asking Neon to call for help. Homicide chief Ray Bionde had went into the house and it was obvious to him that it was something that was very similar to what happened to Teresa Wallen. He had went to the back bedroom to find Evelyn Miroth and in the front of the house, Danny had been shot in the head twice, while Evelyn had been mutilated the same way as Teresa. The autopsy had later revealed that unlike Teresa, Evelyn had been sexually assaulted as the killer's semen was found within her rectum. She had been anally raped with one of the two butcher knives that had been found um, beside her, and it was with such force that the inside of her buttocks had been cut open. 
There were two cuts to her rectal wall and her uterus had been severed in six different parts. Alongside her genital wounds, investigators found that her abdomen had been cut open with a cross-shaped incision. The liver had been cut and also, like with Teresa Wallen, the membranes connecting her organs had been severed. A large portion of her intestines were outside of her body, as was her stomach. Postpartum wounds included eight superficial cuts to her neck and one along the inner corner of her eyelid, and her right eye had been pulled out of her socket and was dangling on the side of her face. They had been so overwhelmed by the state of Evelyn's body that they almost overlooked seeing the small figure that laid on the other side of her, um, which I guess it was more on the other side of the bed from Evelyn, and that would be her six-year-old son, Jason, who was all dressed up and ready for the trip to the mountains. He had also been shot with a twenty-two caliber bullet, and luckily enough, 13-year-old Vernon had been at school when all of this happened. While the police had been investigating the house, a frantic woman arrived, and her name was Karen Ferrara, and she was looking for her son, 22-month-old David. They had been informed earlier of what happened inside the house, and the police had realized with horror that there had been another child involved this entire time, and he was not in the house. In fact, there was no sign of little David Ferrara, and this was the nephew that Evelyn was babysitting. The police had searched the house again and found something terrifying, seeing that there was a 22 caliber bullet hole and a bloody pillow within the crib in one of the bedrooms. Scattered on the floor were his various belongings as well as bloody footprints, and some of the gore in the blood-filled tub was later determined to be some of the baby's brain matter spilled when the killer hacked open the back of his skull. As police canvassed the neighborhood, people would tell them that the description of the possible killer, which was a strange-looking individual who was white male, maybe six foot tall, wearing a bright orange parka, very scraggly hair, very thin, who was peering into people's houses. Although this was a consistent, like, description across all the witnesses, there was nothing particularly distinguishing about these details, um, and police struggled to identify him as there were very many skinny, unkept young white men in the area, as back in this day, like I said, it was a very common way to look, and everyone had the long hair and disheveled look. The detectives had gotten a break in the case when Nancy Holden had come forward about after seeing the sketch and told them about their encounter at the shopping center on the morning that Teresa Wallen had been murdered. Nancy had told them about the uncomfortable run-in, and Detective Irie had questioned her later that same day to ask her more about the incident, and she had described his jacket, which was the orange-colored jacket, and it was the same jacket that the guy saw Richard wearing when he was walking towards Teresa Wallen's house. Police records for Richard Chase had shown that he had a number of arrests from the late 1960s to the early 1970s. Uh, most of them were charges for drug possession, but in 1968, he had been arrested as a suspect in a shooting. In 1973, Richard had faced a concealed weapons charge, and three years later, he was arrested after he escaped from the psychiatric ward at the American River Hospital. It was Richard's latest arrest in 1977 at Pyramid Lake that helped break the case and provided an address for which was listed as 2934 Watt Avenue, apartment number 15. Detective Irie went down to the Watt Avenue apartment complex in an unmarked car, along with Bill Roberts and Ken Baker, who were also new detectives. 
He had it in his mind already that if the baby was at the apartment, he was going to kill Richard Chase, which he knew was a thought that cops weren't supposed to have, but this guy was just bizarre. When they arrived, they had went to the apartment manager's office, and she had confirmed that Richard Chase was indeed a tenant at the complex and lived on the ground floor in apartment number 15. They had tried knocking on the door, but had gotten no response, and luckily the apartment next to his was empty, so they got the key, and Detective Ken Baker went in and listened through the wall and heard moving around inside the apartment. Without a warrant for the apartment or an arrest warrant, Irie had asked Bill Roberts to go back to the manager's office to call their supervisor, Ray Bionde, and ask for advice. The sudden silence left Chase to think that they had left, and he had come out of his apartment with a box full of rags and had saw Detective Irie and started running. As he was looking over his shoulder, Detective Baker was on the other side and knocked him down, and both him and Irie had jumped on him and wrestled around with him. Richard had been armed with his gun in a holster underneath his jacket on his chest, and Irie had twisted the barrel of his thirty-eight caliber pistol onto his ear and told him to quit fighting or he was going to blow his brains out. Still, Richard tried hard to break free from the officer's grasp, and that's when Irie had found out that he wasn't like him. And even though it would have been a good shooting and it would have been justified, it wouldn't have been justified in his mind because he couldn't kill him, and he because the average person that cops included are not like him and that he this person was a cold-blooded killer and Irie wasn't and that is what separated him from people like Richard Chase. He dropped his own weapon and focused on disarming the suspect and eventually they overpowered him without a shot being fired. As they took Chase into custody, detectives had went into the apartment to look for the missing baby. Nearly every surface of this apartment was covered in blood, the couch, the kitchen, counter in the sink, the bathroom, the carpet, and there was a strange looking substances in jars in the fridge, and in the blender there was what looked like organs that were maybe from an animal or human mixed with Coca-Cola, but the baby was still nowhere to be found. In the interrogation room as the detective who made the arrest, Detective Irie was the first one to question him. Chase admitted to killing dogs, and Irie had tried everything he could, but Chase would not admit to killing people. When asked if he killed Teresa Wallen, he had denied it. When asked if he had ever killed anyone, he denied that also. Irie had failed to get any kind of confession or the whereabouts of Baby David. And two months later, the whereabouts of Baby David were discovered. Less than a mile from Chase's apartment in March 1978, a caretaker of the Arcade Westland Church had discovered the body in a cardboard box in a little voided area in between some buildings. The body was badly decomposed and his head was decapitated, but the rest of his remains and clothing were in the box. In the end, Richard Trenton Chase had killed six people, and in 1979, he would go to trial for which his attorney would enter a plea of insanity. The prosecution felt confident that he knew the difference between right and wrong when he committed these murders and was technically sane in the eyes of California law. He put the effort into trying to cover up his crimes and he did not and to not get caught, all of which would suggest that he knew what he was doing was wrong. He would wear rubber gloves, but on the other hand, he would never clean himself up and would try to conceal his appear or never try to conceal his appearance and wander in and out of people's yards. On the stand, Chase admitted to drinking his victim's blood and to decapitating the infant in order to obtain more, and he had said that he thought it would be more therapeutic. 
Chase had described himself as a good person, although weak in the heart and mind. The difference between what would be life in prison or the death penalty would be if he was declared insane or not, and on May 8th, 1979, Richard Trenton Chase was found guilty of six counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. A little over a year after his sentencing on December 26, 1980, Chase had committed suicide and was found dead in his cell, caused by an overdose of hoarded antidepressant medication. That is all I have for you guys today. Um, I will have the link for this documentary that I was referring to in the show notes, and I will also have the title of the book of where I got like all of his background information from. Um, the book goes in a lot more graphic detail about the things that he did. Um, so if you want to read that, go for it. I kind of had to skip over some of it just because it was very like graphic kind of stuff. Um, but like what he did to animals and that stuff that I just cannot stand to listen to or read. Um, but it is a good read overall, and it is something that I recommend definitely checking out. And I definitely recommend checking out the documentary as well. So, um, I will have those posted in the show notes. And I will also have an Instagram post for this at Creality underscore podcast. Um, so feel free to go check that out. I hope everyone has a good weekend and has a good week next week. And I will see you next time. Bye.